0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I'm sitting in for Tony today. My pleasure to be with you. The website is tonyperkins.com. Before we get on with the show today, I want to remind everyone that there are primary elections tomorrow. Continues to be primary election season, and your vote means more than ever during primaries because so few people vote, which means your vote is worth more. So tomorrow in Connecticut, Minnesota, Vermont, and Wisconsin. If you live there, make plans to fill out your ballot. If you need help, if you need a voter guide, go to iVoterGuide.com. That's what we recommend to get great voter information to make sure that you can vote in a way that is consistent with what you believe. Today on the program, we'll get an update from the ground in Israel. A ceasefire has been called after three days of violence. What caused the latest skirmish? And we'll talk about that. Last week, the Biden administration was threatening to defund a school feeding program because it was being run by a Christian school. Are they changing their mind? We'll tell you more about that story as well. And finally, a new report suggests that all the wokeness in America's high school and elementary schools is part of a larger plan being executed in our universities. We'll talk to the author of this report coming up later today. But our headlines for today. With the Senate voting along party lines and Vice President Kamala Harris casting the deciding vote, the ironically named Inflation Reduction Act passed in the Senate on Sunday afternoon. The Democrat-controlled House is scheduled to take up the legislation on Friday, with with the bill's passing expected soon after that. So what does this mean for the average American family? Joining me now to discuss it, as well as his own legislation to prevent federal funding for abortion travel, is Congressman Buddy Carter. He serves on the House Budget Committee and the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, and he represents Georgia's 1st District. Congressman Carter, welcome to Washington Watch.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's good to see you today. What was your reaction to the news of the passage of the reconciliation bill over the weekend?
2: Well, quite honestly, I was not surprised. I am disappointed. I, I tell people all the time that I, I don't really get surprised anymore, but I still get disappointed, and I'm disappointed in this. Listen, uh, they refer to this as the Inflation um, Deceleration Act. I refer to it as the Inflation Acceleration Act because this is the worst thing that we can do. This is throwing fuel on the fire. This is you—you you cannot spin your way out of inflation. It does not work. Raising taxes, even Barack Obama said. That the you cannot raise taxes during a recession, and we are in a recession. I don't care how the White House spends it. I don't care how they define it. We are in a recession. I, I'm in the district now. I have been um, last week and this week, and I will tell you, people are hurting. They're hurting, and they they understand that we're in a recession. We've got to stop this spending. We've got to stop putting more money into the economy. Do no harm. That's the key here. We've got to stop the spending. We've got to unleash our energy independence and our energy power s, and we've got to do something about the regulatory environment. That's the way we're going to get out of this recession, not by putting more money into this, not by uh, raising taxes. And this is going to raise taxes on everyone. Don't for one minute think it's just people making over $400,000 a year.
1: Congressman Carter, uh, you have some perhaps strange bedfellows in your belief that this legislation is not going to reduce inflation. Senator Bernie Sanders, who I know you probably don't agree with on much, he had this to say during the debate over the weekend. Let's play clip three.
3: I want to take a moment to say a few words about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that we are debating uh, this evening. And I say so-called, by the way, because according to the CBO and other economic organizations who have studied this bill, it will, in fact, have a minimal impact on inflation.
1: So, Congressman Carter, you think it's not going to help inflation. Senator Sanders doesn't think it's going to help inflation. Polling over the weekend showed that only 12 percent of Americans think it will reduce inflation. So why are we calling this the Inflation Reduction Act?
2: I'm not. I'm calling it the Inflation Acceleration Act because that's what it's going to do. Like again, you cannot spin your way out of inflation, and that's what they want to do. It's simply ridiculous what they're trying to do here. And, oh, by the way, I would certainly be remiss if I did not mention, since I am a pharmacist, that the prescription drug part of this is the worst thing we could possibly be kill. Rest- and therefore kill in a You know, I've practiced pharmacy for over 40 years, and I've seen nothing short of miracles as a result of research and development. And now what they're trying to do, this is going to end all that at a time when we can least afford to do that. We need more cures. We need cures for Alzheimer's, for all kind of different diseases that are out there now that are going to challenge us now and in the future. Congressman Carter, you did
1: briefly cut out, and it's the wonders of the Internet, and so I think we lost a key, a key point that you made there, but I believe what you were saying is that this new legislation is going to cap the amount of money that will be able to be used for uh, for R&D and the, the pharmacy companies can receive in reimbursement for their drugs, which you believe is going to disincentivize innovation. Is that your point?
2: Yes, that is my point exactly. This is going to kill research and development, and that's the last thing we need in this country right now. Not only that, but it's actually going to increase prescription prices because the launch price now is going to be higher than it has been in the past. These drug companies understand what's going on here. They're simply going to raise the launch price because they know they're not going to be able to raise the price later on. Right.
1: Congressman Carter, in your judgment who wins from this? Clearly, this is a political environment. There are people who want this to pass. It's, uh, it's questionable whether the American public wants this to pass, but there are people who want this to pass. From just a purely political perspective, who benefits from this passing?
2: This is a Hail Mary by the Democrats. This is one of their last opportunities opportunities to try and salvage midterm elections, but it's not going to work. The American people are not stupid. When would they learn that? When would the Democrats learn that? This is going to hurt us in the long term, and people understand that.
1: I think you might be right, because this the last several years, last couple of years in particular, has just been a uh, a lesson in how to create inflation. We know there have been supply shortages of all sorts of goods. In the meantime, the government has just been pumping money into the economy, partly to a, a deal with COVID, partly just for the, the political benefits, I think, from that. But the it, But the outcome of that has been exactly what we were seeing, record high inflations. But it does seem counterintuitive that we just continue more of that, continuing to pump more money from the government into the economy when the when the supply of goods is not there uh, to balance that out. And all you inevitably, that's what the economy that's what that's what all the economic principles tell us is we are going to see inflation. But uh, Representative Carter, there there was, there's another element of this because so much of this money is going to the IRS to pay for 87,000 new agents. I understand. Senator Ben Cardin was asked about this. Uh, here's what he had to say.
4: 230 economists wrote letters to Congress saying that the Inflation Reduction Act would actually add to inflation. Ted Wharton's budget model said- Can
3: you to- understand how 87,000 new IRS agents would scare the heck out of millions of Americans? Well, millions of Americans aren't going to be impacted by that other than getting better service from the IRS. There's no reason to be fearful. And if you have paid your taxes and if you comply with our laws, you should want to make sure everyone else does that.
1: Congressman Carter, any reason for Americans to be fearful of 87,000 new IRS agents?
2: Anytime the federal government comes to your door, you should be fearful. Let's make sure we understand that, particularly if they're from the IRS. Of course, this is nothing more than to try to recoup more money. And that's exactly what they're going to be doing. This is going to be a boom for CPAs, but it is going to hurt Americans. That's why I say to think that taxes are going to go up only on those making over $400,000 a year, wrong. This is going to hurt everyone.
1: Very quickly, this bill is coming from the Senate over to you and your colleagues in the House. What do you expect to happen there?
2: I suspect it will be along party lines. I I don't know that we'll have anyone in the Republican Party. We may have a couple who vote for it, but I'm sure that the speaker, who admittedly does a good job in counting votes, I'm sure she'll have the votes to get it passed.
1: I want to switch topics on you in our remaining moments here News in the last couple of weeks because President Biden, his executive order uh, requiring the federal government to reimburse travel expenses for those who want to travel across state lines to get abortions. You've responded with some legislation. Tell us about that.
2: It is. It is the um, Defunding Abortion Transportation Act. And what it does is to make sure that no taxpayer's money are used for people to be able to travel to get an abortion. It's a common sense bill. I co-sponsored it along with uh, the chair of our conference, uh, Elise Stefanik from New York. And it says it does exactly what it should do. And that is to make sure that taxpayer's money is not used to help anyone travel uh, to get an abortion that's not what we are supposed to be doing in this country and that should not be doing and done and this is what it will do is to prohibit it.
1: Congressman Carter, we all know about the long standing debate over the Hyde amendment. And this is something that even in President Biden when he was representative then Senator Biden for for decades literally was a strong defender of the Hyde amendment. He abandoned that support of the Hyde Amendment in order to win the Democratic nomination uh, to the White House, and he has done so, of course. But the, the principle of the Hyde Amendment is we can't use federal dollars to fund abortion. Now, in this case, uh, it's not his, his executive order doesn't say, oh, we're going to pay for abortion. It says we're going to pay for transportation so that people can go get abortions. Is there any sense in which this executive order itself might be a violation of the Hyde Amendment?
2: I certainly think it is. There's no question in my mind it is a violation of the Hyde Amendment and the intent of the Hyde Amendment. And, and the spirit of the Hyde Amendment is that no taxpayer's money will be used for abortion. Well, this is to, to help with transportation for abortion. Therefore, it is abortion. Now, look, everyone has the right to interstate travel. Nobody questions that. But you do not have the right to use taxpayer's funds to travel to get an abortion.
1: Is this purely a political move? Is there any practical um, benefit from having the federal government say that we're going to pay for people's abortions? Is there is there precedent for something like that, paying for travel?
2: Yeah, there, there is um, monies out there to help people, um, non-emergency medical transport, um, people who are on dialysis. But no, there is not a precedent for um, uh, allowing taxpayers' money to be used for for the purpose of abortion, of traveling to get an abortion, or anything of that sense, and, and this is just the president and the administration again trying to protest uh, the decision by the Supreme Court uh, of Roe v.ersus Wade, which um, obviously I, I applaud, and and now it goes back to the states, and the states will make that decision on a state by state basis.
1: Uh, so. Representative Carter, one more question. I want to go back to the reconciliation bill again. We've got about a minute left. The money that is being spent here, is this being borrowed? Is it being printed? Uh, Where is this? Is it just tax increases? Where is it coming from?
2: Well, a lot of it will be the 87,000 IRS agents that are going to be added. Now they want to come in and and try to get blood out of a turnip. And that's going to be some of it. But, yes, there are tax increases in there on corporations. And, you know, again, even Barack Obama said you you do not go up on taxes during a recession. But this administration, the Biden administration, they are tone deaf. They do not understand. They don't understand, again, that you cannot spend your way out of inflation. It cannot be done. This is going to raise taxes. It's going to raise taxes across the board, whether you make $400,000 or less than $400,000. It will raise taxes. And yes, I'm sure it's going to increase our debt, which we can ill afford to do at this point.
1: Congressman Carter, we are out of time, but thank you so much for your time today. We'll do it again soon. Thank you. Coming up after the break, a ceasefire in Israel is good news. Will it hold? What happened? We'll talk about it when we come back here on Washington Watch.
0: Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit... FRC.org slash Bible.
4: First Peter 315 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online Center for Biblical Worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldviews monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview.
5: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. A ceasefire between Israel and the Islamic Jihad militant group in Gaza is holding today. Following a three-day conflict that is believed to have killed 44 Palestinians while demonstrating the effectiveness of Israel's Iron Dome, the U.S.-backed anti-missile defense system, which led to zero Israeli casualties. The action, which was dubbed Operation Breaking Dawn, began Friday afternoon following Israeli intelligence that Islamic Jihad was moving large anti-tank missiles towards the border with Israel. Now, this led to a preemptive Israeli strike and three days of fighting. Joining me now from Israel to discuss this is Chris Mitchell. He's the Middle East Bureau Chief for CBN News. Chris, welcome back to Washington Watch.
3: Great to be with you, Joseph.
1: Tell us from your vantage point, what has been the scene there in Israel for the last three days?
3: Well, we were down there south uh, on the border between Gaza and Israel and uh, very tense, very quiet, actually. Most people were indoors or actually fled the uh, the area once uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad began firing rockets uh, Friday afternoon. They fired more than uh, about 1,100 rockets over about a three-day period. Uh, many people, as you, talk, you talked about the Iron Dome uh, anti-missile system, we were able to see that in action. We were driving down there close to the border on one of the roads and uh, actually saw the Iron Dome interceptors. Streak up into the sky. Uh, what we did is most Israelis do: we'll stop the car, and you have to get uh, on the ground. And we actually saw seven uh, intercepts by the, uh, the the Iron Dome. It's an incredible thing to see in in action and in person. And that led to uh, the fact that many many uh, Israelis were able to have, uh, even though they had to take shelter, uh, they were able to depend on the uh, this technological marvel to keep them safe.
1: Now, Chris, most of our audience has probably not been to Israel, and we hear these we hear these about these places, and we know about Jerusalem, and then we hear about the West Bank, and we hear about Gaza. Can you put this into a context of how close or how far apart these things are these places, and in a way that Americans might understand?
3: Uh, sure. If yeah, You're probably in Washington right now, uh, Joseph. Uh, if you drive two hours to Richmond, that's about the same distance you could drive from where I am sitting in Jerusalem uh, down to uh, the southern part of Gaza. Uh, you know, Gaza stretches along a, a number of miles, and uh, there's dozens and dozens of Israeli communities just within a few miles uh, or within sight of the uh, the Gaza border, which is controlled right now by Hamas. But the Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, is the second most powerful group therein. So if you can imagine, uh, say, uh, you know, rockets firing from uh, Falls Church into Washington, uh, and what would, uh, what would all the people in uh, Washington have to do? Uh, It's something that Israel has tolerated for maybe 20 years or more. Uh, by these rockets coming out of Gaza. And then also there's a huge threat up on the northern border with uh, Hezbollah. But maybe that gives some, some uh, an yeah. idea of context of, uh, of what it's like if you were in America and uh, you could drive two hours and you'd be under uh, threat of rockets. And when we drive down there, Joseph, you can kind of tell when uh, when you're in range. Either you can see some of these Iron Dome intercepts. Uh, typically it's a puff of smoke because this uh, intercepts can track and then destroy these rockets thankfully uh but it's uh, it's what millions of israelis have been uh, been living under threat for for many many time many many years
1: and it's hard for Americans to understand that, where you talk about these these towns that are on the border of the Gaza Strip, and their playgrounds in their public parks have bomb shelters built into them, and children are drilled, like we have earthquake drills in the States, <laughs> children are, are are drilled with what to do when they hear a, an air raid siren go off, so they quickly run into the nearest bomb shelter, and they are literally everywhere. We hear about this as if it's normal, but the what this actually does for every Day life is just unthinkable for most Americans, and so we appreciate that context. But Chris, you're talking about the group Islamic Jihad. We're familiar with uh, Hezbollah. We've heard about Hamas in recent years. Where did this new group, Islamic Jihad, came from, or are they actually a new group?
3: No, they began about 1981. They're Shiite group. Uh, and they're funded and supported by Iran. So it's not a, just a terror group like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. This is all part of Iran's uh, proxies throughout the region, not only Hezbollah. They do support Hamas as well, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Houthis, many of the Shiite militias inside uh, Iraq as well. Uh, so the Palestinian Islamic Jihad is, is just one of many groups uh, but this one is entirely supported by Iran, and this is, uh, this is sort of the long arm, the tentacles of Iran reaching throughout the region, spreading its uh, brand of terror and its ideology.
1: And we understand that this latest round of conflict was initiated by a preemptive strike on behalf of the Israelis. They essentially saw troop movements along the border, and they wanted to stop that from, uh, from uh, threatening the Israeli people. What Any sense of what the, is the group Islamic Jihad was trying to
3: accomplish with their uh, movements? Well, right along the border there, Joseph, there's many roads that are in sight uh, of Gaza, and they expected maybe anti-tank missiles like uh, a Russian-made Cornet missile could have been used to strike a school bus, uh, civilian cars, and uh, they wanted to prevent that. They actually locked down that area about three days before Friday. And uh, the lockdown was precipitated by uh, an arrest they made of the uh, top Palestinian Islamic Jihad leader in uh, Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. That led to the lockdown. They had intelligence that told them about this uh, terror attack in the making, and they preempted it. It was actually something uh, they haven't done for a while, Joseph, instead of uh, usually it's maybe Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad that will instigate uh, in a terror attack, and then Israel will respond. This time, they took preemptive strike, and uh, it seems to have significantly devastated uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. I would also say that, uh, Joseph, you know, there's been 1,100 rockets that they fired, but about 200 of them actually fell within Gaza itself, causing many uh, injuries and deaths to the Palestinians. And that is the tragedy of all of this, is the is the innocent
1: people who are just trying to live their lives on both sides of the Israeli-Gaza border who end up being victims of this. Chris Mitchell, we are sadly out of time. There's so much more to talk about, but we will have to do it another day. Thank you for uh, staying up late with us this evening to bring us this news.
3: Thanks, Joseph.
1: Coming up next, last week we brought you a story out of Tampa Bay, Florida, where the Biden administration was threatening to end a a uh, program to feed hungry students. There's an update. We'll tell you about it when we come back here on Washington
5: Watch. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically, one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm here with you sitting for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. You may remember from the program last week, the case of Grant Park Christian Academy. This is a Tampa school that was denied funding for its school lunch program under the new Biden administration guidelines for Title IX. This was due to the school's refusal to comply with the Biden administration's radical expansion of the definition of sex to include sexual orientation, gender identity. We have good news to report. Just days before the new school year and nine days after Alliance Defending Freedom attorneys filed a lawsuit on their behalf, the school was informed last Friday that their application for funding has been approved and that the students will continue to receive their meals. Joining me now to discuss this is Erica Stein Miller-Predomo, Legal Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. Erica, welcome back.
7: Thank you very much for having me, and I'm glad to be back so soon to report on good news.
1: Well, it is great to have a a legal issue resolved quickly, and we don't say that every day, but we think it is. Uh, Tell us a bit about what you've learned since we last spoke.
7: So last week when we spoke, we had a court date. We are set to be uh, heard before the court on Thursday, August 11th. But on Friday, we were contacted by state and federal officials who uh, basically backed down the Biden administration, um, backed down. They'd rather not take these issues to court. They, um, rushed to now grant Grand Park's uh, Grand Park Christian Academy's religious exemption that we've been uh, seeking clarity on. And the state officials, uh, ensured that they will be approving the school's application to participate in the national school lunch program for the 2022-2023 school year. So basically, um, they have, guaranteed that starting Wednesday when classes are in session, the kids at Park Christian Academy are going to be receiving those meals and the school will be receiving its necessary funding.
1: That is terrific news. Do you see the speed with which they change their position on this as an admission that if this went to court, they were going to lose?
7: Well, I think that the Biden administration realizes the egregious manner in which it was trying to and ignoring the school's religious liberties in this case. So this is definitely a win for religious liberties. It's a shame that we had to go to court and put this pressure on them in order for them to comply with religious exemptions that are already in the law. But what this win for Grant Park Christian Academy doesn't do is let other religious schools know where they stand. Um, Do they have to be Filing letters for the Department of Justice, or I'm sorry, for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. When are they going to be receiving word from the government without a pending lawsuit? Um, so there's a lot of still questions that are unresolved, but we're definitely happy that mm. for Grant Park Christian Academy, uh, they can begin schools and know that they're going to be receiving those meals.
1: That is that's a really good point, because we're this specific case dealing with this one school and we have a good resolution. But is it true that the default position for the rest of the country remains You must comply with the government's definition of sex and sexual orientation, and if you do not, you have to specifically get an exemption. Isn't that itself a problem, that you have to get formal paperwork approval from the government in order to be able to live as everyone else does if you have the belief that men can't become women?
7: That's exactly true, and that's why ADF has taken the position that it was unlawful to require religious institutions in the first place to go out of their way, to prepare these letters, to request of the government um, a freedom to exercise their religious beliefs that is protected by law, that they have by automatic application of federal law. And what this, uh, one of the other questions that remains in this case is we still have the Biden administration overreaching and trying to change law without going through the proper processes. And that is uniquely impacting still public and charter schools that don't qualify for religious exemption.
1: So, Erica, is it true that we can't resolve those questions about whether the government can do this in the first place until they try to enforce these exemptions? And in some ways, by granting the exemption in this case, allowing this particular program to continue, they can continue to hold the position that they can force everyone else to do that?
7: Well, I think that's something that remains to be seen is what exactly is their position going to be in regard to the religious exemption. So Grand Park Christian Academy is still waiting to receive that letter from the USDA. And we are waiting to see what exactly is their position regarding the scope of this exemption and the scope of what they think Title IX reaches.
1: Erica, do you know of any other schools or Christian religious organizations, perhaps, that are also waiting for a similar religious exemption?
7: Well, we have advised a lot of our church and alliance members to contact us regarding exemption letters to help them get this process going so that they can ensure that they'll be receiving funding and um, being able to receive a religious exemption. So ADF is here to help for those who are in a position of not sure what next steps that they need to be taking uh, and helping to to helping these religious institutions secure um, their rights under the law.
1: Erica, for schools like this, and I'm sure this is not a giant school. They don't have a massive budget. These aren't people looking for a fight. They're just trying to serve their community. How important is it for schools like that, organizations like that, to be willing to stand up for themselves in cases like this? Because in doing so, they really stand up for the rights of everyone else.
7: Grand Park Christian Academy has shown tremendous courage in standing up. You're you're right. It is a small school. They have about 56 students enrolled for next school year, and it is a community-focused school that's just trying to provide a service of giving the parents in the area an opportunity to give their kids a Christian education with uh, school staff and faculty that love the students, that treat them with dignity and respect, and that provide essential meals. So. They didn't, they shouldn't have had to file a lawsuit in order for the government to protect their religious freedoms. But Erica, the courage, uh, their courage will definitely help. Sadly, others. we are out
1: of time. I've got to cut you off. We got to go. It's a heartbreak. Good news. Thanks for being with us. When we come back, we have more from universities. Why are they so crazy? We'll tell you when we come back.
6: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood
5: Visit FRC.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph, back home with you in place of Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. When the COVID pandemic led to virtual schooling, parents got to look into their children's classrooms, many for the first time, and many were horrified by what they saw pornographic sex education, gender confusion, critical race theory, and all taking the place of reading, writing, and arithmetic. How did we get here? Well, in a new report titled From the Top, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty took a deeper dive into what future teachers are being taught in the Wisconsin State University system. We found dozens of examples of far-left indoctrination, included in the required materials just to get a teaching degree. And joining me now to discuss his findings and what this means for our children's education is Dr. Will Flanders. He's the research director at the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty. Dr. Will, thanks for joining us.
0: Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here um, Let's bottom line it, and then we'll work our way backwards. What did you discover about the influence universities are having on America's future teachers?
0: Yeah, so that you're right that there's a huge amount of liberal indoctrination going on. And I think the, the key point to realize is that, um, you know, when we're looking for the origins of the stuff that we are seeing in our classrooms today, What we're learning here is it's not just teachers organically coming up with this stuff themselves. They're not um, unilaterally going out on a limb and and finding materials that are sort of contrary to what they've been taught. Instead, it's a process that's been going on for years and years throughout their entire education. And we found it across every university in the state, every public university in the state uh, that has an education program. We found the same sort of message being taught at all the universities.
1: Okay. Now, tell us. How did you, what research did you do? How did you find this that led to those conclusions?
0: Yeah, so we're a law and policy center, so we have, you know, good ability to do wide open records requests. And what we did is we open records requested every syllabus for required classes for each university in the state. And that was uh, 14 different universities. And we did get results back. You know, we can at least give them credit for following through on the open records request, despite uh, the controversial stuff that was included. uh, We were able to get responses from each university, looked through them, sort of culled them. Uh, We had some uh, other researchers on staff. Credit uh, Dylan Palmer, who was a research assistant over the summer, did a lot of the uh, groundwork here looking through these materials, and we pulled out not every example. There's even more in there than what's listed in our report, uh, but a, a ton, ton of the most controversial examples that we ran across and, uh, and put them out there for the world to see.
1: And I want you to tell us about some of those. What were the most controversial examples? What did you see that led you to believe that really this is a, a, an orchestrated effort to get the teachers and then send them out into the schools?
0: Yes, yeah, so I think the, the stuff that you would think would be there is what we found, unfortunately. We found a good amount of CRT. Um, you know, the, the left and, and opponents like to say this stuff is not being taught in school, but that's absolutely not the case. We found books like Anti-Racist Baby being required at the UW-Stevens Point. Uh, we found a number of different uh, texts that sort of set up this critical race theory narrative that individuals can't achieve on their own. They're sort of subjected to the race that they're uh, born with, and they can't succeed in life if they come from a certain background. Um, we also found a lot of uh, controversial stuff in in regard to LGBTQ+. Um, we we found materials that suggested not only do you have to treat students with respect, and you know I think that's a reasonable goal, but we need to be promoting this in, in classrooms as young as three-year-olds. And that was in one of these textbooks that we should be promoting uh, LGBTQ agenda in the three-year-old classroom on campus. That was one of the more horrifying findings that we had. Uh, but any litany of things that you would think would be in sort of the liberal uh, checklist of things they'd like to see in schools, It's being taught from freshman all the way to senior year.
1: We're talking to Dr. Will Flanders from the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty. And, Will, you you mentioned some of the books that were included in some of these syllabi that you looked over. Was this required? Is this something where students could get a teaching degree without doing this, um, but by choosing particular classes, they would have some of this Or is this something that everyone in these degree programs was required to walk
0: through? Now, that's a great point to to emphasize here. These were the vast majority in required classes. We did pull a few electives, but all the stuff that I just mentioned to you right now were from the required classes. Um, so you're not it's not as if this is just a, an agenda for a teacher who happens to be a liberal and wants to move in that direction. Yeah. Teachers from any any background that want to become an educator in the state of Wisconsin are going through the vast majority of these courses uh, without any alternatives that are available. These are the required list of classes.
1: Now You mentioned some of these problematic classes that deal with I mean, sensitive LGBTQ issues or critical race theory. Would a would a student going through these programs have to take one of these two of these is what's the degree of saturation that they that they experience in these programs
0: an interesting question we sort of focused on the classes that seem most likely to have these sorts of materials in place uh, but I think the reality is as we see at the university level as a whole you know there was a poll in 2020 that the 48% of teachers identified as Democrats and only 6% identified as Republicans. That's university-wide. You know, so even if these teaching candidates are taking classes um, in other fields, if they're taking their history classes in the history department, it's likely that this stuff is pervasive across the board. And, you know, we can only do a small sample. We got a lot of material, but it's still a small sample from each university. Uh, but uh, it's likely that almost every class that a teacher is in or a, a prospective teacher is in, they're going to be seeing some of this stuff.
1: You know, Will, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I kind of, I feel like I have a personal long history with this because my wife and I are alums of a different UW, uh, of the University of Washington from Seattle. And my wife got her master's degree in education at the University of Washington. And I was watching that process. And we're now about 20 years out from this. Uh, But she, at one point, and we had this genuine conflict with one of her professors because she was required to write a paper on the ways in which she was a victim and the ways in which she had victimized others. And the assignment gave her this, this long list of isms and racism and sizism and you know, ageism, all the isms that we know about. And she was required to uh, identify with some of them and then talk about all the ways in which she had done that. And her initial uh, reaction essentially was, I don't really consider myself to be a victim. And that was found to be an unacceptable answer. And so the the professor said she cannot pass the class until you answer the, the, you complete the assignment on the merits. And I I raise that because this is a couple decades ago almost. And so my question is, long lead up here is, do you have a sense for how long this has been happening in the university system? So how long has it been, to, to borrow a Reagan term, trickling down into our education system?
0: Yeah, great question. I think, uh, you know, while I think it's gotten worse, and I think the, uh, the left has become more emboldened in recent years, I think you're absolutely right. Um, even before we saw sort of this uh, pervasive CRT culture uh, nationwide across our culture, it came from the university system, right? The first CRT theories uh, were propagated in the 1970s. And so this stuff has been going on at the university level for a long time. Um, I also went through a teacher prep in, in Georgia uh, back about uh, 15 years ago at this point. and And some of this stuff was even there then. And that was sort of the impetus for thinking we should look into this because I knew, you know, you have a teacher who may come into the field and, uh, you know, have a, a sort of system of moral beliefs that's absolutely consistent with the community that they're coming from. Uh, But when you're inculcated in this environment for four years, a lot of potential teachers don't have the sort of baseline knowledge to even know that they're being indoctrinated. So, you know, your your wife was fortunate that, you know, she has that understanding to know what's going on. A lot of teachers may be teaching this stuff and learning this stuff without even knowing that it's a particular liberal ideology that's sort of being forced and indoctrinated into them. Yeah.
1: Now, Will, it seems there's an opportunity cost to education. And if this is a priority in our education schools, training our teachers, do we have any sense of the things that they are no longer learning? Is there a is there a loss in some more substantive subject matters that our teachers have because it's been replaced with all of this DEI stuff?
0: Yeah, I think uh, we absolutely see that to be the case, at least certainly we see it in the results that we see in schools, right? Across the country, uh, we see NAEP scores, so scores on math and, and reading tests that are that are stagnating um, here in our own state of Wisconsin. We have record low uh, performance on our forward exam, which is our state exam here in Wisconsin. So um, when, as you say, it's a, it's a fixed pie, there's a set amount of hours in the day and a set amount of classes that a teacher is taking. And inevitably some of that content is being replaced uh, by this sort of material that really is uh, not related directly to what they're supposed to be teaching, uh, but takes up that time. And we see the results in schools that are seeing a declining performance uh, relative to where they were a decade ago. Yeah.
1: And again, anecdotally, when I recall the time that I was going through a, I was vicariously going through a master's in education program with my wife, uh, she would end up re- proofreading a lot of her cohort's a material, and I was, I was shocked at the inability to just. Construct paragraphs. And these are people who had already finished their undergrad degrees and they were in a master's program. And I was horrified by just the, the basic grammar ability to make an argument in writing. Yet they were all getting their master's degree. They all completed it successfully and they understood the answers to these other questions that they were, sub- that seemed to be in, in fairness at that point, the real priority of the program. But you've described kind of the way that this has been operating holistically from the university system down to the lower education system. But do you have any sense that this was, um, is this being masterminded anywhere? Is there some, you know, puppet master behind the curtain controlling all the universities? Is this happening organically? How did this situation develop?
0: So I think, you know, it's a complex question, right? There's There's a lot of different components that have contributed to this. I think when we think about the university environment and the sort of pervasive ideology in the university environment as a whole, um, it's sort of inevitable that it makes it into the education department as well. So while there are, um, you know, the, the sort of founders of the CRT narrative and, you know, those folks sort of that, that belief system trickled down, I think it is to some extent, and it's more problematic because this is the case. It is somewhat organic and developed among the left wing faculty at universities across the country. Um, so while there is money behind it and there are folks that are heavily pushing the narrative, um, I think it's definitely the case that, now, we're seeing this stuff pop up um, even in places that are sort of disconnected from that, even at small rural universities that uh, might have very little connection to those, uh, you know, those larger universities. Um, it's, it's pervasive across the board because I think it sort of fits uh, with the politically correct narrative that these schools want to push, and that's what makes it even harder to fight. Yeah.
1: Will, based on your research and what you've kind of learned about the system and the way this is operating, what advice do you give to parents who have students in this system?
0: Yeah, so Will, our our organization, well, I'm Will Flanders. We, they call me Flanders at the office to avoid confusion. But uh, our organization is currently working on a project that's known as Restoring American Education. And the goal is here, parents have seen behind the curtain, as you said in your intro, we need the alternatives. We need to have alternative resources out there. So I'll just plug our own website, will-law.org. And if you go there, you can find our Restoring American Education project. Uh, what we have there are resources for school boards that want to fight back against this stuff. Uh, we have resources for parents that we're developing to sort of uh, what is CRT and what are the alternatives that are out there? That's, I think that's the most important part is seeing what the alternatives are. And we also, have, by the way, have uh, resources for teachers. Again, we know teachers have been indoctrinated into this stuff, and they may not even realize it. Uh, so the teachers that want to go down a different path, they need those resources. Our project is one part of it. I invite your, your, your viewers to uh, check that out. Uh, but we need across the country sort of a broader approach to provide these alternative resources so that there are things out there. Uh, for parents, teachers, and uh, and school boards that want to go a different way. Sometimes we find those resources are currently lacking.
1: Can you give us that website one more time where they can find your report and those resources?
0: Absolutely. You can find the report and, uh, and our Restoring American Education Project at will-law.org.
1: Okay. Thank you. Now, is there a way to fix this system? When it comes to the the university system that really does seem to have been uh, taken captive is there a solution? Do you have to just rebuild new universities that aren't doing this?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging question. As, as we discuss the pervasiveness of uh, liberalism across universities as a whole, I think one key is to get t- more teachers into the classroom that were not exposed to this stuff. So uh, make it easier for teachers to come into the classroom through alternative means, like uh, alternative licensing procedures. Another key is more school choice. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're big proponents of universal school choice, making sure every family has the chance to go to the school that uh, meets their needs. And when every family has that opportunity, pushing these liberal agendas, and it won't be as popular. They, they won't be able to get away with it, I should say. They won't be able to do it as, uh, as effectively because parents will have the opportunity to take their kids out of school. So I think getting other teachers from different backgrounds in the classroom along with universal school choice, that's our best path. Uh, but while it's not lost, that's a much longer-term process to try to fix.
1: It's easier to sell a bad product if people are required to purchase it, and that's kind Absolutely. of been the monopoly that we've had right now, and in, in the ability to in ish, introduce competition into that. And Will, this might be the last question I got for you. It's a couple minutes, but you've used the term indoctrination several times in our conversation. You refer to that in your report. Define that for us. What's the difference between indoctrination and simply exposing them, somebody to a set of ideas that they may not have previously been exposed to?
0: Yes. Another great question. I think what we our perspective is that we don't mind if some of this material is taught to teachers. We think exposing folks to different ideas is a good thing. The problem with indoctrination is that this is presented as the one perspective that you can move forward with. So, for example, you know, with your wife, you, you know, she wanted to go a different path with that uh, with that work, and that wasn't allowed. Um, We have no problem with presenting a wide variety of ideas, particularly at the college level. That's what it's for. But when you're in in a box and you're not allowed to think outside that box, that's no longer the goal of college and presenting a wide variety of concepts. We're now in the realm of indoctrination where this is the path you must go forward on, and you're sort of stuck in the vacuum of alternative viewpoints. And we think that's a pretty negative uh, process that's happening in, in our universities.
1: Yeah, and it begs the question for me, whether the university system, the universe, the one verse, this recognition that there are things that are true and we want to try to find it, whether that university system has lost its purpose entirely. But you've done a really good job and a great service to all of us uh, to make this research available to us, do that work and show us how this is working. One more time, Dr. Flanders, on behalf of Will, uh, what's the website we can get that report?
0: The will-law.org. And we will do so,
1: Will-la, Will-Law.org. Thank you so you much it. for your time today.
0: Thank you so much. Have a great evening.
1: And friends, we thank you for your time today as well. Thank you so much for being with us. This is such a critical question. Education and indoctrination are very different things. When people are afraid of the expression of viewpoints, they disagree. That's when you walked into indoctrination territory. Be mindful of that for yourself as well as for those you love and where they get educated as well. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing else.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom,